0: Please grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4 is where we'll start this morning. One thing I love about Christmas songs is their emphasis on the person of Christ from a theological perspective, not just that um, He came and He was nice, He was the perfect human, so of course He was nice or whatever but that He truly was God in flesh, that He was truly God and truly man, that He dwelt among us, and that He is King and He owns the world. You just sang these truths disguised in those very familiar Christmas jingles. You sang some very deep truths, and um, I love that about Christmas songs. And I hope we'll see that more and more today as we study the Word of God together. Uh, Revelation 4 is where we'll start, but before I start there, how about we open up with another word of prayer? Father, again, we are thankful for what You have done and what You continue to do in the lives of Your people. We thank You for Your Word, that it is holy, it is inspired. Your Holy Spirit is the author of this Scripture that we're looking at today, and Your Holy Spirit dwells in each one who belongs to You. So, Lord, I ask that You would Guide us and direct us in our thinking today that You would provoke us where we need to be provoked and convict us, and that You would encourage us in Your truth. Lord, I ask that though I am a sinner, both by nature and by my own choice, that You would not allow me to get in the way of Your text this morning, but that Your Word would be clear to Your people. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our minds are going to be taken to heaven here in Revelation 4. Are you ready to escape the news of the day with me (laughs) and put your mind in heaven? (laughs) I am. Uh, Revelation 4, we're going to envision this heavenly throne room through the inspired words of the Apostle John. And we're going to work backwards today. We're going to start here, and we're going to hit several events going backwards on the timeline until we reach the present day at the very end of the message. So we're starting at the end, and we're going to work backwards. Revelation 4, starting in verse 1. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw... Twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Drop down to verse 9 with me. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and because of Your will they existed and were created. What an amazing testimony, this heavenly confession of the 24 elders who cast their crowns and then proclaim the excellencies of Him who sits on the throne. Now, there's debate on who these 24 elders are, and I'm not intending to go into great detail on that today. Uh, some believe the 24 elders represent the church, the church taken up into heaven before the time of tribulation on the earth. Some believe that the elders were a class of angels, that these are a type of angels who were there in heaven around the throne. And we're not looking to settle that interpretation today, but those are two of the main interpretations. I just want you to see that according to their knowledge, and certainly they have more knowledge than us, as we read through this, they are there in the presence of the one who sits on the throne. They are there with all the knowledge of what's going on in heaven. And I want you to see what actions follow that knowledge. They take the crowns that they've been given and they cast them before the one who sits on the throne, before the one who lives, it says in verse 10, forever and ever They cast their crowns before that throne. So I want you to just to note from this perspective, number one, this is awesome. Okay, it's just really cool and amazing and wonderful and delightful and joyful. It's all those things. And we will have an experience like this one day. And it'll be amazing. But I also want you to see that and understand that it's reasonable that all who will have crowns in heaven Whether that's us, angels, whoever it may be, all who will have crowns in heaven, it's likely that we'll all be casting them as an act of worship before the one who gave it to us. And this is the big picture of what God is doing in the world. Revelation 4 is the big picture of what God is up to. He is in the business of bringing glory to Himself through His creatures. He has created us that we may proclaim His excellencies. He has put us here that we might honor Him, that we might praise Him with the fruit of our lips, that we might offer that sacrifice of praise over and over again. It's all about the glory of God. God is all about the glory of God. And to our ears, that might come across sounding so narcissistic, right? Like, he's all about His own glory? If there was someone in this room today who said, yeah, I'm all about bringing glory to myself... We'd say, uh, you might want to talk to one of the pastors, (laughs) right? Um, Or maybe you should uh, just repent right now for such an evil, wicked thought. And that's because for a creature, that is an evil and wicked thought. But there's a great divide between Creator and creature. The Creator is perfect in all of His ways. He always has been and always will be. And He is owed glory. He deserves glory. And we as creatures, fallen as we are, sinful and wayward as we are, deserve no glory. We were made by the Creator according to His good and perfect will, according to His purposes, to worship Him and Him alone through all eternity. No matter what we're doing, no matter what we're up to, it's an act of worship to God because He deserves it. And that's what He's up to, is bringing about this worship, this glory of His own name. Now, whether or not that's the church in Revelation 4, the 24 elders, the fact remains that we will have crowns that we will be able to cast. Whether or not that's us in Revelation 4, we will still have crowns. And I want to give you an overview of Of Christian crowns as found in the New Testament. You won't have to turn to these passages. I've got four verses, and they'll be up on the screen. I just want you to see and reference and write down. By the way, if you don't normally take notes, this will be a sermon that you want to take notes, all right? Uh, Don't say I didn't tell you so. All right. Uh, Christian crowns in the New Testament starting with 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9.25, later on in this very book we're studying, Paul writes, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. He's contrasting athletes, earthly athletes of the day, with spiritual beings, we Christians. And the word for wreath there is the same word for crown in Greek. It's the same exact word. So whether you want to interpret it wreath or crown, you know, whatever you want. But the idea is that in this life, as Christians, as spiritual children of God, we are competing, we are racing, we are going after something, and we are going after a crown or a wreath that is imperishable, that will never fade away, that no one can take away from us. Amazing thought. More details on these crowns. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Paul writes to this young pastor saying, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. What a sweet verse. For all people who have loved the appearing of Christ and who will welcome the second coming, Jesus coming a second time for His people, who will be there full of faith, ready to receive Jesus, all of those people will receive the crown of righteousness. James chapter 1, James 1 verse 12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. All who love God, who are carried about through this life, persevering by God's grace, will receive the crown of life, crown of righteousness, crown of life. In 1 Peter 5.4, this is a promise to the under-shepherds of God's church. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading or imperishable crown of glory, crown of righteousness, crown of life, crown of glory, unfading, imperishable. These are for the Christians. Christians will receive crowns. And to give you a quick summary of what we just read, you could say it this way. Crowns are bestowed on Christians who have persevered after their efforts on earth. Crowns are bestowed on Christians by God after their efforts for Him on earth. There's an order to this. You don't become a Christian and then get a crown. It comes later. It comes after your life on earth. Paul wrote explicitly to Timothy saying, On that day, after I've lived this life, there is waiting for me a crown of righteousness. These crowns are given at judgment. The crowns are bestowed on us at our judgment. And there are different judgments in the future for different people. The Bible talks about two main judgments, the great white throne judgment that's found in Revelation 20, you can make a note of that, great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, and then the Bema or Bema seat judgment that is for all Christians. The great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, if you read through that text, you'll see that the end result for those who are at that judgment is the lake of fire. As those, come, those people who are made in God's image, as they come before the throne of God, their names are not found in the book of life, and they are cast into the lake of fire. That's what happens at the great white throne judgment. But the Bema Seat judgment is different. The Bema seat judgment is for Christians, and there is no condemnation. There is no punishment at that judgment, no punishment whatsoever. There's nothing punitive at that judgment. But instead, Christians are judged in a different way. And these are two totally different words. The word for throne in the Greek is thronos. It's where we get our word for throne, Revelation 20. It's the throne that all those people will be standing before, the great white thronos. Yet, When it talks about the Christian judgment, it's the word bima or bema, and that means a tribunal, a raised platform, and it's always talked about as Christ's, the judgment seat of Christ. It's not the great white throne, but it's the judgment seat of Christ. And at that point, Christians will receive the crowns as a result of the life they lived here on earth. Two different judgments for two different groups of people, one Group of people, Christians redeemed by the grace of God, who have been saved in this life. And the other group of people, those who have rejected the gospel, who went to their grave denying Jesus, having no faith in the gospel, and then are going to experience the promise of Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man once to die, and then comes judgment. And they will experience that at the great white throne. But as we put the great white throne judgment aside for the moment and just focus on this judgment for Christians, because that's what our text is about today, I want to show you some more verses. So, write these down. You don't have to turn and follow, but I want you to see this in the New Testament, that this judgment seat of Christ is talked about in a variety of places. Starting in Romans 14, the Bema seat judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. In Romans 14, Paul writes, "'But you, why do you judge your brother?' Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we, this is the context of Christians, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Each one of us, Christians, will give an account of himself. Of himself to God. The other big passage that speaks of this judgment seat for Christians is 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done. Whether good or bad, we must all, we all Christians must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians 4, so close to our text today, one verse, 1 Corinthians 4 5, it says that Christ will return. In 1 Corinthians 4 5, Joseph, 1 Corinthians 4 5. Uh, uh, maybe I didn't put it in there, but in 1 Corinthians 4 5, and we can turn there together because it's right next to the text we're going to study today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, It says, Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to the light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Don't go on passing judgment now, but wait for the Lord Jesus to return, because when He returns, that's when He is going to judge, and He will judge perfectly. He will disclose the motives of every person's heart. Are you encouraged or frightened by that? (laughs) Right. He will do it. This is a reality for all people, including Christians. And this seems as though this judgment... That takes place for Christians at the judgment seat of Christ, it seems as though this will take place during Daniel's 70th week. We are still waiting for the 70th week of Daniel, according to his prophecy in chapter 9 of the book of Daniel. That prophecy that says, In the 70th week, there will be this man who will make a covenant with the many for seven years, and in the middle of seven years, he will break that covenant. We haven't seen that happen yet, and so it appears as though the church won't be on the earth at that time, and instead, we will be up in heaven, and the judgment at the Bema seat will take place at that time. And many things will happen there. Many things will happen during that period. We will be preparing for a millennial reign with Jesus on earth. We will be preparing for the new heavens and new earth that will be made. It will be a glorious time, and it will also be a time of our judgment, the Bema seat judgment. Let me give you a definition for this Bema Seat Judgment. don't know if you'll have enough time to write it down, but I'll give it to you twice anyway. The Bema Seat Judgment is the revealing of the Christian's works done on earth, tested by the omniscient judge, so that they may receive their due from Him before entering the millennium. The Bema Seat Judgment is the revealing of the Christian's works done on earth, tested... By the omniscient judge, or you could say all-knowing judge, so that they may receive their due from Him before entering the millennium. What a time that will be. What a judgment that will be to have our works tested by the one judge who knows all things. And today's text brings more light to that. Look with me in 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 12. This gives us more detail of this Bema seat judgment when Christians stand before their master, Jesus Christ. We talked last week about the foundation being Jesus for the church at Corinth. The foundation is Jesus for this church. We have been built on the foundation of Jesus and His finished work. And we continue building as stewards of God's grace, and at the end, that work will be judged. Starting in verse 12, If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." A few notes on the judgment here as described in this particular passage. Notice that the works are on trial, not the person. The works are on trial, not the person. The person's soul is not up in the air for, for grabs. The person's soul is not on the line whether he will go to heaven or hell. But instead, the person's works are on trial. The works are being tested. Believers are not to fear any punishment or any condemnation. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this judgment does not have to do with condemnation of a soul Notice also that the works are being tested for quality, not quantity. It doesn't say if a man's building on this foundation of Jesus, if a man's building is not yea tall, then he may not receive a certain reward. It has nothing to do with how big the building is, how tall the building is. It has everything to do with the quality of the materials, the quality of the work, and we'll go into more detail later about that. The quality is being revealed, not the quantity. And this judgment has to do with giving an account and receiving a reward that corresponds to the work. The reward is not um, arbitrary. The reward isn't the same for everybody. The reward isn't a random number, but the reward corresponds to the person's work. Okay, a few things to notice in that passage. And we'll come back to those, <laughs> those ideas and hopefully uh, provide Clarity on those, because we don't often think about this, do we? We don't think about the judgment that we will go through. And there will be a judgment for us. We've read texts this morning about this. And so we do well to think through it. In light of this, I want to read uh, a quote from Anthony Hokema. He says, The sins and shortcomings of believers will be revealed in the judgment as forgiven sins whose guilt has been totally covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, believers have nothing to fear from the judgment. Amen? Amen to that? (laughs) I'm happy about that. I don't know about you. Believers have nothing to fear from the judgment. Then he goes on to say, though the realization that they will have to give an account of everything they have done, said, and thought should be for them a constant incentive to diligent fighting against sin. Conscientious, conscientious, that's a hard word to say, Christian service and consecrated living. So, though we have nothing to fear from the judgment as far as our sins being held against us, condemning us, there is an aspect in which this is a judgment. It's not just like a handshake. It's a judgment. And there is a giving of account, and there is a result that corresponds with the work. So, we do well to remember it in many ways. We need to think about this in our future. Before we continue to unpack 1 Corinthians 3, I want to give you a couple of notes on rewards in general, because it does mention here the receiving of a reward. And it's not the only place in the New Testament that talks about receiving a reward. We already looked at crowns, receiving crowns, but there are other places that talk about receiving rewards in the afterlife. Ephesians 6 provides us some detail on this. In writing to. Slaves, Paul says in Ephesians 6 7, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. So receiving back a reward that corresponds with what is done on earth. And again in Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, 23 to 25, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. There will be a perfect judgment in the end for all people. And for Christians, you're not exempt. There will be a perfect judgment, and there will be a reward that corresponds with the work that you've done in this life. So, all Christians will be saved, but Christians will reap different rewards. And for some of you who perhaps are from this area or perhaps raised out here uh, thinking, believing a different religion, you might say, So, we're all saved, but we're all exalted at different levels. Is that what you're saying? Different levels of exaltation? Is that what's going on in the Bible? Well, yes and no, okay? Uh, Yes and no. First, there are not different kingdoms in, in heaven. There are no different levels of kingdoms. There's only one kingdom. It's God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, That awaits all Christians. That is our shared inheritance. We will all be in heaven together, and after the Lord does His final works on this earth, we will all be in the new heaven and new earth together, and we will all be enjoying the presence of one another for all eternity, to which you say, amen. (laughs) Amen some days, right? But there will be varied rewards. We can't ignore this fact either. There will be varied roles in heaven. When we all get to heaven, we all don't become uniform robots all doing the same thing. There will be different gifts, different talents, different roles, different rewards. These will exist in heaven. And your mind might start thinking, well, what are we going to do? I'm going to be over here mopping the the floor because I got the janitor reward or whatever, uh, you know, and this guy is that or whatever, and are we just going to be like bickering or how's that going to work out? Well, Number one, we don't have a lot of detail as to how this plays out. But number two, you need to remember that in heaven, in eternity, when we're there in the new heavens and new earth, there's a total absence of sin, which means no jealousy, no envy, no greed, no anger. None of those things will exist. No selfishness, no pride. And we can't even begin to really think about a world like that because our world is so infested with these things. But we have to remember that that's the promise of Scripture. So we have an overall shared inheritance, but we're not all transformed into the same creatures. We all still have diversity. And our diversity, diversity now is a strength. It'll continue to be a strength through all eternity for God's church, an equality to be cherished, not something to scoff at. But you might also be thinking, okay, I'm tracking with you, but what about by grace and not by works? That was read earlier, right? Ephesians 2, it is by grace you are saved, not by works, that no one may boast. And these rewards are a result of our works. What's the deal with this? How do we reconcile this? Well, it's still true that it's all by grace and not by works. If it weren't for grace, we would all be at the great white throne judgment. We wouldn't be at the Bema Seat judgment. So it's certainly by grace. Grace is still front and center But for Paul, he saw no conflict between rewards and grace. He saw no conflict between pay and grace, receiving what is due for the works you have done. And we know at the end of the day that it's all by God's grace that we do anything good, right? It's by God's grace that you thank anything good. It's by God's grace that you speak a word of encouragement to anybody or a word of truth. It is all by the grace of God. So he saw no conflict between these things. He was motivated by these things. Remember Philippians 2, Philippians 2, 12 and 13? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, Paul, you're the grace guy, right? What's going on? What do you mean work out your salvation? Verse 13, for it is God who is in you at work, bringing about His will. That's grace. And so there's no conflict between our responsibility to work and the grace of God that enables us to work. So I want us to, well, I want to say this to you as we get back into 1 Corinthians 3 in a moment. I want you to put these thoughts in your mind. If we think about this future judgment and the rewards and everything to follow, if we think about this nonstop and see it as the ultimate motivator for holy living, we will be more susceptible to works righteousness and we will be more susceptible to minimizing grace. We will. But I want you to hear this too. If we avoid thinking of this future judgment and the rewards and all, all that, and we don't allow it to motivate holy living in any way, we become more susceptible to licentious living and abusing grace. So on the one hand, if you're thinking about it all the time and you're thinking about this judgment and earning rewards and earning crowns and yada, 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 and usually what follows in this camp is putting details into the afterlife that we don't have in Scripture, picturing how everything's going to look and all of that. And if you're just consumed by that thinking, you're going to be much more prone to thinking you're earning your righteousness. You're earning something from God. And your motivation for holy living will largely be fear of losing out something for yourself. But if you swing too far the other way and you think, well, I'm not going to think about that. We don't know much about it. I just don't even want to think about it. Then you could be prone to forgetting that you will be judged. Christians will be judged and there will be a giving of account. And there has to be some level at which we are motivated by this fact that we are going to stand before our Lord face to face. And that should motivate us. It motivated Paul. We make it our aim to please the Lord in all things. So there has to be a balance. We can't take advantage of grace for licentious living, and we can't minimize grace and think it's all based on our works. There has to be a balance here, understanding we are saved by grace, not by works, and the grace that saved us is the grace that changes us, and it is our stewardship to yield to the Holy Spirit, to walk in God's ways, and to love Him by following His commands. That's the balance that we need to aim for, the balance we need to strike. Just yesterday, I was having a grumpy day. Any of you have grumpy days? (laughs) I was having one of those days where everything, to some degree, was just kind of annoying me. (laughs) Because I don't deserve to be annoyed, I deserve to be catered to. And uh, things were just kind of rubbing me the wrong way yesterday, and I was grumpy. And I was thinking about my sermon that I hadn't finished yesterday, and I was thinking how my grumpy day plays into the application for, for this message, because here I am calling us to strike a balance, and I'm thinking, how can I strike a balance with my own sin right now as I'm being prideful, arrogant, boastful, and grumpy, whining and complaining? Uh, I didn't have any great revelation, just so you know. I have no, I have no book to write after my thoughts yesterday. Um, But I did think about this judgment seat of Christ. I did think about how I was grabbing a hold of my sin because I liked it, and how I am going to have to give an account, and of course I'm thinking about this because it's my text for today, but I think I would do well to think about it more than I have historically, to let that be a reminder that I was created for a purpose, to glorify Him. If we get so heavy-handed with grace that we eliminate other texts of Scripture, we are misunderstanding grace. And I know I am prone to lean that direction. I don't naturally have a very sensitive conscience. I'm naturally one that says, oh, it's okay. But I need to remember that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account to our Lord. The grace that saves us is the grace that changes us, and we are responsible for walking in it. It is our responsibility. Now, the passage today, again, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15, this certainly has a church leadership emphasis here. He's writing about the direction the church is going, encouraging them to forsake earthly wisdom, to forsake the philosophies of men, to embrace Christ as the only true foundation, And of course, the leaders of that church were the ones who needed to hear that the most, but ultimately, all Christians are in view with this passage. Because all Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to varying degrees, we will all have works done in the church for the church that will be presented before the omniscient judge for Him to test. And so I want us to read this again and include all of that context in your thinking that we just went through. Again, starting in verse 12, I'll just read verses 12 and 13. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So, the first thing we need to recognize in this text is the different qualities of work. There are different qualities of material that are put into this building or this temple. And there are different ways to grow a church. This is all metaphor for the church growing, for the church maturing. And there are different ways for a church to grow, and some of those ways are bad. Some of those ways are wrong. Some of those ways are outright sinful. As a church gets planted, like the church in Corinth, and it begins to grow and appoint leaders, there are bad and wrong ways to do that. Paul is using a building metaphor that the Corinthians would have been very familiar with. Remember, the city of Corinth was full of pagan worship. There were temples everywhere. Temples were a part of their normal architecture down each and every city street. And so they were familiar with good temples and they were familiar with bad temples. There's a way to build a building that makes it very prominent and strong and sturdy. And there's a way to build a building that makes it Look very shabby, feel very shabby, and potentially it'll fall down and it won't last. And Paul here is presenting the gold and the silver and the precious stones as types of material that will last, that will make it prominent and sturdy. This is the good work that God desires. He's presenting them over and against the wood and the hay and the straw, which put together a shabby shack of a building, of a temple that can't last, that won't last. All of these materials. Will eventually decay. The gold and the silver and the precious stones are the works that God approves of and the wood and the hay and the straw are the works that God hates. And works that God hates can't remain before Him. That's why they go through the fire. They can't remain for eternity, but they will go through a fire and be consumed. Motives and priorities are at the heart of this. Paul doesn't have in mind that gold and silver and precious stones are the things that you should be doing as a Christian, like going to church. Well, that's gold. I went to church 85% of the time in my Christian life, so that's a gold, a gold stone I'm bringing to God. That's not what he has in mind. He doesn't have baptism in mind as, well, here, here's my silver. I got baptized. Actually, I got baptized twice because I wasn't sure if the first one was good enough. I got real good silver here for you, Lord. Lord. That's not what he has in mind. But what Paul has in mind under the inspiration of God writing this letter is what's the motive of each man's heart. Remember 1 Corinthians 4, 5? Look at it again with me, just a page over perhaps. Chapter 4, verse 5, Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of of men's hearts. The motivations will be revealed. The priorities of men will be revealed. Man looks on the outward, but God looks on the heart, doesn't He? And at this judgment, there will be a revealing of each one's heart. And I really think it's as simple as this. If you're, if you're thinking, okay, well, what's the divide then? If it's not the things that we do, if it's the motives, what are the motives? How can we separate the good motives from the bad motives? I really think it's this simple. Selfishness versus selflessness. I really think it's that simple. Prideful selfishness. The works that you do even in the context of the fellowship of God's people. Prideful selfishness. I want to be up there so people can see me and see how good of a speaker I am, or I want to play this instrument so they can hear how good I am at this instrument, or I want to do this or do that so people will see me, and people will understand how good I am and how helpful I am to them and how much they need me. Prideful selfishness versus Christ-like selflessness, which is really just wanting to wash people's feet which is really just wanting to bow down low in love and do whatever needs to be done for the sake of God's people because you love them. It's humble, selfless, Christ-like love. And we need to realize that what may look like hay-quality work to us might be done with a gold heart. And what looks like gold-quality work to us might be done with a heart that's full of sin. We need to be careful about going on passing judgment at the present time, and we need to wait for the Lord, who will disclose the motives of men's hearts. You've all experienced it. Maybe you've experienced it here this morning. Someone who's happy to be singing to the Lord, but no one else around is hearing anything happy. <laughs> we might think, like, "Oh, well, they should tone it down. Uh, they don't sound that good." They're You know, like me, I sing jailhouse style. I'm always behind a few bars and looking for a key. Uh, There might be people like that in our fellowship. (laughs) And we think, well, that's really stubble quality singing. But God might see their heart and see gold and silver and precious stones because that person's full of faith and that person's full of love. And we might see something that someone does here on the, on the church property and think, man, just really, really talented. That person really helped us. That is superb. That is excellent. It's just what we needed. But God might see the heart and say, that's a filthy rag. Because God knows the depths of our hearts, the motives of our hearts. And He alone can determine what is good quality and what is of bad quality. And those who have bad and sinful motives and those works that were done with bad and sinful motives, look again with me in chapter 3. What will happen? It'll be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. And jump down to verse 15 with me. If any man's work is burned up, the text here tells us he will suffer loss He will suffer loss, but He Himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. What could suffering loss mean? If this isn't a judgment that brings forth our sin to condemn us, if hell isn't on the line, if we're going to heaven, if we're going to be saved, as Paul says in the same breath here in this verse, what could suffering loss mean? Well, I want you to think about this. However it will appear to us, and we don't know exactly how it will appear at this judgment seat. But when you see the works that you've done disintegrate in a flame before your master, there's something that you will be suffering loss about. And I can't go into great detail about that. Scripture doesn't go into great detail about it. Except we know that those works will be burned up before the Lord of the universe. And there will be a suffering of loss there. Certainly a loss of reward for those works. How far it goes, we don't know. We need to think about this as we consider our future. Yet, for the works that were done with proper motives, verse 14, the work that remains, He will receive a reward. For those works that God calls good, there will be crowns. And as MacArthur puts it, varied and wonderful rewards. Varied and wonderful. I like that pairing of adjectives. Varied and wonderful. But for the works that burn, though their justification is untouched, their innocence before God is untouched, there will be a conscious awareness of loss, a conscious awareness of loss. It's an amazing thing. And we do well to remember and even memorize, if we haven't yet, this little stanza, and I didn't look up the origin of it, but only one life. "'Twill soon be past, and only what's done for Christ will last.'" We have just the one life, and it will soon be over. And in the end, only what's done for Christ will remain. Only one life, twill will soon be past, and only what's done for Christ will last. So again, I want you to remember, if we think of this future judgment nonstop, and if it is our ultimate motivator for holy living— we're going to become susceptible to minimizing grace and susceptible to works righteousness. But if we avoid thinking of this future judgment and don't allow it to motivate holy living in any way, we will become more susceptible to licentious living and abusing grace. And we are not to abuse grace. I want to encourage you today as I close. That you do not have to build badly in this life. You do not have to build poorly in this life. God has given you all the tools you need to build well on the foundation of Jesus Christ. He's given you the gold and the silver and the precious stones. You have His Word, you have Him living in you, you have His body, the church. You have the example of Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. You don't have to build badly. You can take advantage of the grace of God in the right way in this sense. And you can build on the foundation with precious things. Do not use grace as a cover for sin. Don't take advantage of God's grace so that you can build with hay and straw and stubble. So what? It's going to burn. I'm getting in anyway. What a wretched thought. What a blasphemous thought. Just because blasphemy is covered by the blood of Christ, that doesn't mean we go on blaspheming. But we are to be changed by the cross. And when we understand truly what Jesus has done, we can be changed and use grace as a platform for free, eternal, selfless service. God's grace becomes an enabler for Christ like love and Christ like works. So the church must be alert. We have to wake up to these realities. We have to be alert with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God in us, willing and working, that we might serve our King faithfully in all that we do. It's not about checking off tasks on a list. It's about being changed and renewed day by day. Though our outer man is wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed. And we yield to God, we submit to God, and we take up the responsibility of walking in newness of life because His grace has provided that for us. And we follow Him each and every step of the way. Father, again, You are so kind, so full of grace and mercy. You have given us so many gifts. Please expose in our hearts where it is that we've taken advantage of grace, where we've written off holiness as legalism, where we've rejected Your good commands and treated them like the commands of men. Give us an awareness for the ways that we are to change as we yield to You and submit to You and by Your grace experience that change. Allow us to continue to get into each other's lives in this fellowship, that we would know each other well and care for one another well and admonish one another and encourage one another as we see the day approaching. Lord, give us more love and humility and wisdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.